Well, uh, hopefully grab your Bibles, please. We're looking at uh, the passage David read for us earlier, which is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, through to the end of chapter 2. There's a fair bit going on, so uh, I hope you've uh, got a bit of energy, a bit of um, uh, intellectual oomph this morning. Uh, we'll need to uh, be working hard. So, I'll, yeah, let's, uh, let's get into that. Uh, can we have the PowerPoint presentation up, please? It's painful when you're misunderstood. Let's go right back to the start. There we are. It's painful when you're misunderstood. Uh, take it from me, I've had a lifetime of saying the wrong thing. Of speaking first and thinking second. Uh, of trying to say something funny or helpful or friendly, uh, but instead it comes across as mean or critical, or inappropriate, or just plain dumb. Perhaps you've been on the receiving end of uh, something like that from me. Uh, people get upset, or angry, or hurt, and I need to repair the relationship. Now, at times, as I think about those situations, it, it makes me uh, doubt whether I'm the right person to be sharing Jesus with people. Uh, that the message needs a better messenger that perhaps I need to find a job that I'm better suited to where the mistakes I make don't have such a big impact. Uh, but at least I'm not the only one. Uh, here are some church newsletter bloopers that I've seen, uh, and it makes my mistakes seem not so bad after all. Uh, during the absence of our pastor, we enjoyed the rare privilege of hearing a good sermon when J.F. Stubbs supplied the pulpit. Uh, the concert held in Fellowship Hall was a great success. Special thanks are due to Jan, who laboured the whole evening at the piano, which, as usual, fell on her. Uh, eight new choir robes are currently needed due to the addition of several new members and to the deterioration of some older ones. I think there would have been some careful explanation required there after those mistakes, wouldn't there? It's the pain of being misunderstood. Now, this is actually the same situation that we have with the Apostle Paul. In fact, it's a major reason he writes the letter to explain himself. He's been misunderstood and he needs to repair the relationship. Uh, verse 14, he says he hopes that they will come to understand fully what his situation is. Now, we can use Paul as an example for us to follow. But here's the interesting point. Paul explains himself, but he also uses it as an opportunity to point people to God's character. He does it twice through this section. Yes, Paul messes up sometimes, but God never does. Yes, Paul is not liked by some people. Uh, sometimes he's uncertain about the right decision. But God is the one who leads the victory parade. God has won the victory and things are working out according to his wise and good purposes. Now those two truths, they're an encouragement for me. As I mess up, as I have to explain myself, uh, and when, uh, as I doubt whether I'm the right person to be pastoring a church, and I think perhaps it's an encouragement for you too. Because I'm pretty sure there are times when you doubt that you measure up to God's standard. 
You may let people down, but Paul's message, God's message to us this morning is that God will never let you down. Now, there's a lot going on beneath the surface of this letter. Uh, It's a little like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You ever done that and you think, what is that that person saying words that I understand, but I've no idea what the context is? Uh, Same here, we're only hearing what Paul says, We're, we're not hearing what he's responding to. But put simply, Paul has said to the Corinthian church that he will visit them twice, but he'd only come to visit them once. You can see that there in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 1. But that was enough for people to start accusing him of all sorts of things, that he couldn't be trusted, that he didn't care about them anymore, that he wasn't organised or professional enough to keep his word. And so this letter is Paul's personal explanation. Notice he goes to the trouble of trying to fix things. He could just have washed his hands of the matter and just moved on. There were plenty of other churches that he could focus on. Now, my observation is that's what lots of Christians do. There's a disagreement, there's an argument, there's a misunderstanding, something that, uh, that needs repenting of or forgiving or at least explaining, but it's, it's too awkward and uncomfortable to do anything. Too much hard work. And so rather than have a clear, humble conversation, they just move church. Or they, they stay in the church but completely avoid the other person and just sit on the other side of the building and pretend nothing is wrong. It's terrible. But not Paul. There's too much at stake. He starts verse 12 by describing his motives. What he did, he did out of a genuine love and concern for them, despite how they interpret it. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. He's not unreliable. He's not a hypocrite. There are no hidden motives or tricks. He is sincere and genuine. He's shown integrity in his dealings with them. With Paul, what you see is what you get. In fact, this whole section uh, is about integrity, uh, about sincerity. It it begins by talking about sincerity and it finishes by talking about sincerity. Chapter 2, verse 17, Paul concludes his explanation by saying, unlike so many, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. He's emphasising that he's being sincere and transparent and open with them. A bit further down, chapter 1, verse 23, he goes into a bit more detail about his motives, what's behind uh, his actions. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. He wasn't being selfish when he didn't visit them. It was actually for their benefit. It was to avoid more hurt and pain for them. He wants to work with them, not against them. He he doesn't want to bully them or pressure them. 
He wants to treat them gently. He goes on to describe his thinking in chapter 2, verse 1. Because he wanted what was best for them, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. His last visit had been tough. He'd spoken some firm words. He'd expected their, their obedience, but they hadn't agreed. And Paul had left with the relationship in trouble. And so from the distance, Paul thinks about it, and instead of making another visit in person that could make things worse, Paul chose to write a letter instead. The purpose was to gently prepare the way for his visit, to give them time to come to repentance. Uh, Look at verse 3 there. I wrote as I did so that when I came I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Perhaps they were accusing him of writing rather than visiting out of self-interest. They accused him perhaps of being self-protective, of being a conflict avoider. But Paul is clear about his feelings. He wrote the letter, he was motivated out of genuine love for them. Everything he did was about what would benefit them. Yes, this, that letter was tough to write. There were lots of tears as he wrote it. The, the ink had blotches of... It had run down the page as he wrote. He, he was crying. His tough words were because he loved them so that the relationship could be fixed. There's a model there, I think, for all of us to imitate. Whether we're in leadership or not, First, Paul's motivation, genuine love for the people he's serving. It was not about self-interest. Secondly, his actions. He was making sure things were clear, that there was no uncertainty. Communicating when it would have been easier to ignore the problem. He's not bullying. He's not guilt-tripping. He's not forcing his opinion or his uh, commands on them. And I think even writing the letter is a wise strategy in lots of situations. It gives you time to choose your words carefully. It gives the other person time to consider their response. I think there's lots of wisdom there. So Paul explains his motivations. Secondly, the second area Paul gives an explanation about is his message. Uh, the subject of this painful letter. We don't have this painful letter. It's not 1 Corinthians. Uh, In our Bibles, we've got 1 and 2 Corinthians, but they're probably something like the second letter and the fourth letter he wrote. There's at least one missing letter, uh, probably two. Uh, So we we find out what was in this letter. Uh, Now, verses 5 to 11 of chapter 2 describes uh, his response to their response to his letter, if that makes sense. It seems that, uh, it it seems to be about, the letter seems to to have been about how the church disciplined or or perhaps failed to discipline a sinful man. So that's verses 5 to 11. We're only guessing what this man had done. 
Maybe he'd been a strong critic of Paul. Perhaps he'd been a false teacher or it may have been some sort of moral failure. But it seems like whatever he did, the church had not done anything to discipline him and so Paul had written the letter. But now Paul hears through Titus that the church has acted. They've removed this guy from membership and it did what it was supposed to do. It worked and and the guy repented. He was restored to... uh, fellowship with God but it seems like they they went a bit far and they won't forgive him and they won't welcome him back and so in this letter Paul has to clarify his message, that letter and he says now it's time to restore Uh, that was the aim all along, look at verse 6 of uh, chapter 2 the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him Now instead, you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Now, now this is always the purpose of church discipline. Whenever the elders or the leadership of a church uh, confront a member who is sinning, it is always that they might be restored, that they might might repent and, and be returned to fellowship with God's people and with God. The goal is always that the relationship is fixed. And I think the relationship becomes even better after there's been a breakdown and a restoration because there's greater truth and trust and openness. That's the ideal. Too often, though, that the broken relationship is just ignored. It's too painful to address the sin or address the the broken, uh, the the failing. Now notice in passing why it is so important for us to work hard to restore relationships. Verse 10 and 11 tell us Satan loves it when Christians fight. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I've forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Satan loves to see in the church misunderstandings, resentment, unspoken frustrations. He loves it. He claps his hands. He loves to see disunity. He loves to see people taking sides. Firstly, because it distracts us from the message of the gospel. Secondly, he loves it because our disunity actually weakens our message. A reconciled, united church is a living witness of God's reconciliation of us. When we're united with one another, we're reflecting the unity that we have with God through Jesus. And when we're separated, we look like hypocrites. Satan loves it when we're disunited. Are there broken relationships, misunderstandings that you're involved with here at church? Disagreements that you haven't dealt with? Perhaps because you think it'll all just go away if you don't think about it or deal with it? 
Or perhaps because you, you don't want to make things worse and you might say the wrong thing or you don't know what to say. Or maybe because you think the other person, uh, it's up to the other person, they did the wrong thing and they should just know, they should come to you. We should follow Paul's example here. Uh, make the tough choice to confront it, deal with it, take a risk, bring it into the open, talk about it, clarify it with humility and love. Trust that God is at work in this uh, fellow believer. Give them the opportunity to repent or to forgive you. Clear the air because Satan loves it when we are not united like this. But as Paul gives his personal explanations, as he thinks about the accusations people are making against him, he's unprofessional, he's unreliable, maybe even he's a liar, there's one truth he relies on. He gets comfort from God's faithfulness. He gets comfort from God's faithfulness. Human beings are fallible. Human relationships break down. But God will never fail. The topsy-turvy mess of ministry to fallen people by fallen people, in all of that, there's one constant comfort. God is reliable and trustworthy. Have a look at Paul's line of thinking back up in uh, verse 17 and 18 of chapter 1. Verse 17. Uh, when I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no? Now, now that's what they were accusing him of. He said he'd visit twice, but he only came once. Yes, one minute, no, the next. But whatever Paul is personally accused of, the fact of his message, well, that's something different. Look at verse 18. He says, but, okay, that might be true, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him, it's always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Ultimately, it's not about trusting Paul. It's not about trusting me. It's trusting God. The wonderful news of the Gospel is that a trustworthy God has made promises to untrustworthy people. All of those promises are answered ultimately in Jesus. God promises as we repent of our sin forgiveness. It comes through Jesus. He promises us eternal life. It comes through Jesus. He promises us comfort. It comes through Jesus. He promises us direction and purpose and strength, eternity and hope and love and family, and they all come through Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 21. 
Now it is God who has made both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. What's the characteristic of God that's emphasised there? He's reliable. He wants us to know that he's reliable. He promises to make us stand firm, to never let us go. He guarantees it. And it's all through Christ. It doesn't depend on our dependability, but on God's. When we become Christians, he pours his Holy Spirit into us. Uh, His Holy Spirit does all sorts of things, but here he's a down payment who guarantees. A promise. A promise affirmed. Once again, coming through Jesus. Paul's point, his big point, people may let you down. Perhaps I've let you down, but God never will. Now that's a comfort to Paul. It's a comfort for the Corinthians. It's a comfort for us as well. You may think Christians are constantly letting you down. Perhaps there are people in this church you think are letting you down, disappointing you. That's always going to happen. Hopefully we get better at it, but it's going to happen. But God will never move. God will not let you down. If you start to doubt that truth, don't look to Christians for your reassurance. Eventually they will disappoint you. Ultimately, your confidence doesn't rest on me or another of our church leaders. At some stage, I will let you down. I know that's hard to imagine. One day it'll happen. Don't be following me. Follow Jesus. Follow the one my message is about. Look to him, look to the cross. The cross is the guarantee that God will keep his promises. What a wonderful verse that is. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. But there's another comfort for Paul as he gives his personal explanation. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 12. He talks about his travels. He talks about how he was over in Asia, the other side of the Aegean Sea. He was in Troas. He was there waiting for news from Titus. He was preaching the gospel. But he wanted to find out about the letter to Corinth. Was it successful? And so he jumped on a boat, he headed across to Macedonia. He hoped to bump into Titus. Doesn't sound very organised, does it? Uh, There were no mobiles, there's no email. There's no way of finding out where Titus actually was. It was just sort of a stab in the dark. Uh, He just had to wait and hope he turned up. And as Paul describes his uncertainty, it would be easy for him to get discouraged overawed by the enormity of the task and the uncertainty of the whole thing, the the frailty and the weakness and the lack of knowledge uh, among Paul and his workers. How on earth could he do a job bringing Jesus to the known world when it's all so messy? Well, it's at that point Paul describes his second comfort uh, from verse 14... 
because God is leading the procession. Because God is leading the procession. Uh, The image is of a victorious Roman general who marches through the city streets to the cheers of the citizens of the city. Uh, The priests follow along, carrying incense to the gods in thanksgiving. His army follows along behind that. And at the back of the crowd are the captives, the defeated. And that's Paul at the back. Uh, Look at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we have a smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. Paul's job is just to follow along wherever God leads and, and waft the aroma to the crowd as he goes. Perhaps you've been in a, an Orthodox church where the priest has the censer with the incense and he goes along and he wafts, wafts it. And that's the job of the, the Christian, to, to be wafting Jesus to people. Sometimes it'll be a sweet smell in the nostrils of people. They'll accept the message, they'll receive life. But other people it'll smell like death and and rubbish and foolishness. Now Paul is used to how divisive his message is. All the time people either want to hear more or they get so angry they run him out of town. But he's just following along with God leading the procession. Paul recognises the heavy responsibility of of wafting Jesus to people. Look at the end of verse 16. Who is equal to such a task? In a chapter or two, we we get back to this theme of being ambassadors. Um, But he, he wears the weight of this, doesn't he? Who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we, we don't peddle the word of God for profit. They're not selling the message. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Now, that is his comfort. He's uncertain. He messes up. But God is leading the parade. God has sent Paul and his co-workers. And so he's going to continue to waft the sweet aroma of Jesus, knowing that it's all up to God who's leading the way. So when you start to wonder whether perhaps you are the right person for a ministry you might be doing, and you start to doubt, maybe you're up at midnight finishing that Bible study or that Sunday school lesson or preparing to lead church, or maybe you're exhausted and you just can't continue, Uh, or maybe everyone else has left and you are there to pack up the stuff yet again on your own. Uh, No one appreciates you, they criticise you, they misunderstand you. Maybe you're just uncertain about which direction to turn in. If that's you, be comforted by the facts that comforted Paul. 
When people let you down, God never will. All of his wonderful promises find their yes, their affirmation, their guarantee in Jesus. And secondly, God is the one leading the way. It's his gospel, his victory, his chosen people. He's spreading everywhere the fragrance of Jesus as you work with him. We are just following along behind. Now probably the major theme of 2 Corinthians is the idea of God's strength seen in our weakness. In chapter 4, a couple of weeks, we'll we'll look at it. Chapter 4, Paul puts it like this. Chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in jars of clay. Weak, fallible humans. Treasure in jars of clay. To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Are you tempted to give up because of misunderstandings or or mistakes or failures? Stick it out, look to God. Yes, you are a jar of clay. I'm a jar of clay. But the treasure of the message of Jesus is in us if you are a believer. And anything that we do is not because of us, but because of God's all-surpassing power. That's the message for us to hold on to. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we come to your word at a whole range of different, from a whole range of different places. Some of us are feeling good and, and some of us are feeling beaten down. For some of us, our relationships are, are great, uh, but others we recognise significant hurt and pain. Uh, we pray that you might give us courage uh, to speak openly about these things. Uh, we pray that we might be received well and that uh, against the plans of Satan, that you would unite and restore and reconcile Uh, those of us. We pray that our church would be one uh, that's characterised by openness and uh, a willingness to work through things. Uh, Lord, through it all, we recognise that we are messy and fallen and so we're encouraged by uh, the wonderful truths that you never let us down, that all that you've promised is confirmed in Jesus and that you are the one leading the way. When we are uncertain, you never are. We thank you for these truths. Amen.